Good morning, friends. Good to see you again. Uh, I recognize a number of faces that I, that I know, and it's always a joy to see you. Thank you for receiving me, and I, I bring you greetings on behalf of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I recommended, or I suggested a couple of ideas for preaching on to uh, Mike, and one of them was ordinances, and he thought, you know, it might be useful for us to, to consider about the ordinances. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, the ordinances are kind of a strange topic, aren't they? If you really stop and observe what's going on when, when Christians practice them. We know that they play a central role somehow in the church being the church or whatever it means to be the church. So if you see a movie and it happens to show the church gathering or something churchy, whether we're talking about the Godfather or my big fat Greek wedding or Oh Brother Where Art Thou, chances are you're going to see either a baptism scene or a Lord's Supper scene. There are two things that we do that we just kind of associate with the church somehow. At the same time, it's, it's interesting to me, these days, uh, Christians and those who claim to be Christians feel more and more free to take the ordinances home with them, right? So I've personally witnessed the Lord's Supper, for instance, being uh, practiced in a conference setting or in a wedding setting, just, just the bride and groom partaking of the Lord's Supper as, as we all witnessed um, Baptism, of course, you'll, you'll see showing up at camps or oh, I'm on tour in Israel. Uh, here I am in the Dead Sea. Oh, the tour guide baptized me in the Dead Sea. Or as an elder who, who reads applications for everybody joining our church. You know, people will be on vacation in, in Mexico, for instance. The husband will baptize his wife in the, in the Mexican Ocean. So we, we feel free increasingly these days to sort of take the ordinances, baptism, in the Lord's Supper for ourselves and, and, and use them in a spiritually edifying way or, or something like that. Well, what, what, what are they about? How have Christians throughout history viewed them? Well, we, we've used them very differently. Uh, going back to, to, the, to the early church, some, some have regarded baptism as imparting saving grace. Uh, since at least the 4th century, in the time of Augustine, people have sought to baptize their infants, thinking that the baptism would clear away original sin, so that if there's a premature death, they could be assured that their infant would go to heaven. And various views of infant baptism have carried on in one form or another to this day. Or the Lord's Supper, too. You see a divergent view is going, going back to the 3rd and 4th century, eventually, really, 5th and 6th century, uh, people began to view the, the bread and the cup as the actual blood and body of Christ. That they were reenacting the actual sac uh, sacrifice of Christ. Now, with uh, the Reformation... <clears throat> a lot of these things started to change. So Lutherans, following Martin Luther, continued to baptize infants. But Luther knew that you could only be saved by grace alone through faith alone. So he decided that infants actually have saving faith. So that it was believers 
who were being baptized as these infants. Well, John Calvin didn't think that. Uh, he, he wanted to hold on to infant baptism, but what he said it did is it, it simply simple, it symbolizes the infant's inclusion in the people of God, just like circumcision in the Old Testament signified an infant's inclusion in the people of Israel. It wasn't saving, per se. And then around the same time, Baptists began to recover what happened in the first centuries of the church. Baptism was a way of professing one's faith. Uh, Lord's Supper was a way of remembering Christ's death until he comes. Well, what about you? How, how do you understand your baptism? What do you understand yourself to be doing when you partake of the Lord's Supper? Uh, I confess that sometimes in my complaining heart, when I walk into the assembly in the morning and I see, I don't know how you guys do it here, but when I see the, the elements assembled, I just quickly think, oh, it's going to be a longer service today. I don't take it seriously as I should. Uh, a much better but still not fully biblical thought is uh, the supper is a time to kind of close my eyes, shut out the world, and get a bit of a Jesus jolt, right? It's sort of a turbocharged quiet time, which happens to be in the presence of other people. That's if I'm feeling really spiritual that morning. Is, is that how we should view the supper? Well, think about the scriptures. Turn to Matthew 16, or 26. And let me warn you while you do, we're going to be flipping around the Bible a lot, especially in the first half of this talk. It's a, instead of doing what you typically do here, take one passage of scripture and expound on it, I'm picking one topic, the topic of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures to think about those, uh, to about that topic. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 26 now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it broke and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I will not drink it again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So here, here we have Jesus establishing this institution of the Lord's Supper ordaining it. That's why we, we use the word ordinances, right? Jesus ordained it. And then flip two chapters to chapter 28, and we see him ordaining the ordinance of baptism. Chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, how do we make disciples? Well, by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them. So how do we make disciples? Baptizing, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he, he promises his presence there to the end of the age as well. And after Jesus established these as the two ordinances, or after he ordained these as the two ordinances, sure enough, this is what we see the early church 
doing throughout the rest of the New Testament. Turn to Acts 2. Uh, this is exactly what happens at the, the founding of the church in Jerusalem. Acts 2, verse 37. Peter's been preaching death and resurrection of Christ. The people are cut to the heart. See that in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And look down to verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to the what? The church there in Jerusalem. And then verse 42, kind of a summary statement. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, seemingly the Lord's Supper, and to prayers. What happens at church? Well, there's teaching, there's fellowship, there's a breaking of bread, and there's prayers. You get kind of what a church is there in verse 42. And then one more passage to look at right now. Uh, flip to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, where we get more instructions on the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> verse 18. I'm going to jump over some texts here. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, there's a sense in which we're a church all week, right? You are Arlington Baptist Church all week, but there's also a sense in which you're more the church or you come together as a church. You come together as an assembly. And it's in that context he's referring to. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Verse 19. For there must be factions among you. That's not good, obviously. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Well, what you have is the church is gathered. This is the Roman Empire, right? They're not gathering on Sunday mornings. Slaves especially would have had to work. Well, the rich people who didn't have to work would, would kind of come earlier. Churches would usually gather in the evening. The rich people would show up earlier, start eating, start drinking, get drunk. And then the poor people would, would come up along later. And obviously Paul is, those are the factions and some of the divisions he's referring to. Paul is objecting to that clearly. Verse 23, let me explain to you what the Lord's Supper is. Verse 23, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. Now the Lord Jesus of the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink to eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and I, I take him to mean the church body there, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then verse 33, So then, my brothers, very practically, 
when you come together to eat, wait for one another. This is a church act, he seems to be saying. See, that's, that's a quick flyover of a number of the passages on, on the ordinances. What, what do we make of these? How do we put them together, and why are they important? Well, I'm going to make eight statements all right, about the ordinances. And even if you're not ordinarily a note-taker, I, you might be helped by just writing down these eight statements, looking at them later as well, just kind of seeing a, a picture of what, what the ordinances are and why they're important for us. Uh, even in those eight statements, I, I might leave some things out. There's so much to say, but I'm going to try to say what I think will be useful for you from Scripture right now. Eight things to say about the ordinances. Number one, the whole church speaks through the ordinances. The whole church speaks through the ordinances. And I'm starting here... Because ordinarily these days, I find that when people talk about the ordinances, they speak and talk about it in individualistic terms. And even some of the definitions you'll look at in, in theology books will put it in individualistic terms. We think in, in baptism, I declare my faith. And in the Lord's Supper, I personally declare Christ's coming until he uh, his death until he comes again and that's true that does happen but also in both ordinances the church as a church you act you act corporately you don't baptize yourself for instance there's, there's always two parties involved the, the baptizee person being baptized speaks but also the baptizer, the church, speaks in that act. So if we were to look back at Matthew 18, I didn't go there, but if we were to look there, Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus says he is present, that is to say his authority is present, wherever two or three gather in his name, referring to, to gatherings of the church. And then Matthew 28, which we just read, it says these ga gatherings are to baptize people into the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And just as he says, wherever these two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. And so now, that's Matthew 18, then Matthew 28, he says, when you do this, I'll be with you to the end. All right? and, and did you notice the corporate emphasis and the importance of waiting for waiting for one another in 1 Corinthians 11, as I was reading that? We'll come back to that in the subsequent points. Let me go ahead and mention point two. Point two. The whole church speaks the gospel and our union with Christ in the gospel. The whole church speaks the gospel and our union with Christ in the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, it's the good news that Jesus died in the place of sinners as a substitute for sinners for the forgiveness of sin and that he then rose from the dead defeating death and uniting all those who repent and believe to him in the resurrection. 
in the new creation. That's, that's the good news of Christianity. That is the gospel. So baptism portrays that. It portrays Christ's death and resurrection as well as our unity with him in that death and resurrection. You see this very clearly in Romans 6. Romans 6 says, verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the baptism is a sign of the gospel and the gospel's application in a particular person's life. It says, this person has been forgiven of sin and has been united to Christ by faith. So clearly, Romans 6 is presuming that baptism is something that you give to believers, not believers and their infant children. I remember the day in August of 2004 when I was baptized in, in our church. Uh, and what a wondrous thing it was. It was in a, a baptismal like this and being submerged and lifted up, declaring to everybody present, I'm with Jesus. And the church saying, he's with Jesus. His death, his resurrection, all the benefits of that, they belong to this guy, is what the church was saying when it baptized me on that August morning of 2004. And as I said, it benefits our union, but it also benefits the, the uh, it pictures the benefits of the union. Through Christ, our sins are forgiven and cleansed. Baptism signifies both. So Peter said to the crowd at Pentecost, I just read it to you, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Those benefits are this person's, is what baptism is proclaiming. Or if we're to look at Acts 22, Ananias tells the newly converted apostle Paul, and now why delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins by calling on his name. It signifies that our, our sins have been washed away. We receive the benefit of a union with Christ. And the Lord's Supper is the same. The Lord's Supper proclaims the gospel as well as our union to the gospel. Think of, think of what Paul said to you when I read a moment ago. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There it is, proclaiming the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel right there. And it's, it's the church's version, you might say. The Lord's Supper is the church's version of a Passover meal. We're remembering that great act of salvation. What were the Israelites remembering at Passover? Well, the great act of salvation in the Exodus and the fact that when they smeared blood on the door, the wrath of God passed over them. And then they would continue on a regular basis, yearly, to take the, the, the Passover meal, remember that salvation, their salvation. Well, the Lord's Supper, in the same way, is our regular, repeated Passover meal in which we remember the cross and our life in the cross. So turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. People don't often look here when thinking about the Lord's Supper, but it's, it's a marvelous text. 
1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of this one bread. In other words, the supper pictures are joint and mutual participation as a church in Christ's body and blood, that we're united to it, that it belongs to us. So, the point one was the church speaks. Point two, what does it speak? It speaks both the gospel and our union in the gospel. Okay? But it says more than that. Point three. Through baptism, the church says that the one belongs to the many. And if you want to put a parenthesis in your first point, it would be this. It's, it's the front door into church membership. I'll say all of that again. Point three. Through baptism, the church says the one belongs to the many. Parentheses, it's, it's the front door into church membership. The, the one belongs to the many, you see. And remember how I said both the church and the individual speak in baptism. The baptizer speaks and the baptizee speaks. They, they don't quite say the same thing though. The baptizee says something about Jesus. I'm with Jesus. The baptizer, the church, says something about, about, about the baptizee. He's with Jesus. She's with Jesus. So we're, we're, we're in a political town. Let me use a political metaphor. Baptism is how churches, those outposts or embassies of Christ's king, kingdom, hand out passports or identity papers to the citizens of Christ's kingdom. It's how we make someone a member of the church for the first time and say to the nations of the earth, Hear ye, hear ye, O nations of the earth, Joe, who we're baptizing, is with King Jesus and with the citizens of King Jesus. It's not a private communication. It is a public communication. You might say it's like a press release sent from the press room of Christ's kingdom is what it does. Uh, you know how a, a, a company will send a press release when it makes a big hire and says, so-and-so who's formerly of Google is now with us. Well, that, that's what we do in baptism. Formerly, so-and-so, formerly of the citizens of the nations is, is now with us, the citizen of the kingdom. And these same public realities are in play with point four. Here's point four. Through the supper, the church says the many are one. Through the supper, the church says the many are one. And if you want to add this parenthesis, it's the family dinner table for the membership in the church. So remember what I said baptism is? It says the one is part of the many. Well, through the supper, the church says the many are in fact 
one. It's the family dinner table for the membership of the church. So if, if baptism is how we hand out passports, identity papers, citizen, 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 the Lord's Supper is how we raise our flag, our kingdom flag. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there's his flag. It's flying. Look again at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. <clears throat> because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. What's the verse saying? Well, right in the middle you see that it says, we as a church are one body. Okay, that's clear. We as a church are one body. Well, how, how do we know that? How do we know that we are one body? Look at the beginning of the verse. Because there's one bread. We, we know we are one body because there is one bread that, that we're all partaking of. In fact, look at the second, the, the, the latter half of the verse. It's saying the same thing twice. We know there's one body because there's one bread, the first half, but then the very end, for we all partake of the one bread. Does that make sense? Partaking of the one bread indicates, demonstrates, reveals, shows that we are one body. We're all taking of one bread. Hey, look, it's a church. They're one body. The many are made one through partaking of their bread. In other words, friends, the Lord's Supper is not a private act. It's not an act a father would do with his children at home, for instance. It's not for kids at camp. It's not for a couple in a wedding service. It is a church act. It is a church revealing, church displaying, church, here it is, earth, act. It shows who the church is, you see. And in that sense, the Lord's Supper is like physical intimacy between a married couple. Yes, I really am making that equation. Uh, the act of, think about what, what marital intimacy does on the wedding night. Well, it, it seals the marriage. It shows who the married couple is. It's the sign of marriage. And that's why the Bible, among other reasons, says it clearly belongs only in marriage. And, and Paul, reflecting on this, says, why would you join yourself to a, a prostitute? Don't you realize that when you do that, you become one flesh with her? That is to say, you, 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 you display, you demonstrate to everyone that you're a married couple. That, that's ridiculous. That, that's not where marital intimacy goes. It doesn't go there. It's, it's, it's not for other domains because the very purpose of marital intimacy is to say, hey, marital couple, right here. Okay, in the same way, that's what the Lord's Supper is doing. It's a church act. It, it reveals, it shows, it displays, it seals our relationship as a church. It says, right here, the many are one, church body. Does that make sense? That's why we say they belong in the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper ordinarily, and the exceptions, I'll come to that in a minute, ordinarily belong in the church. And don't just take my word for it, take Paul's. Now, okay, in verse chapter 10, it says, 
We are one body, for we eat of the one bread. And then he gets really practical in chapter 11, which we just looked at. Look there again, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 17. You come together not for the better, but for the worse. In verse 18, I hear that you come together as a church, there's divisions. In verse 20, therefore, when you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. And then verse 27, whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I, I think he's thinking back of chapter 10 there. Without discerning the body, we're one body, for we eat of the one cup. Without discerning the body, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. And then verse 33, just let me get really practical for you. Paul is saying, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. I remember one occasion when I was, um, our church was serving the Lord's Supper, and I was, I was doing nursery duty that night, and my particular job was as hall monitor. That means I stand out in the halls and make sure the kids aren't where they shouldn't be, running around from the classrooms, and people from the outside shouldn't be in where they shouldn't be, and so forth. And I was using my freedom to walk around the halls to stand outside of, of, the, of the main room and was watching through the glass doors the church participate in the supper. And I was, I was standing out there with a couple of my friends. And when the ushers came out into the hallway to go up into the balcony then, we all grabbed a little wafer. And I said to the guys, hey, listen, this, this is a communal act. So as we take this, as we take this bread, I want us to stand in a circle. There's like four of us. I want us to stand in a circle, and I want us to look at each other. And then when we take it, I want us to hug. And they thought that was awfully awkward and didn't want to do it, but I insisted, so, so we did it. And we, we took the supper, and we looked at each other. We are one body, for we partake of the one bread. And then we hugged. I don't think they enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was signifying what happens in the supper. Hey, friends, here we are, declaring his death together, participating in that together. This is a, a church act, a church event, church speech going on. Of course, it's not just the church who speaks through the ordinances. The individual Christian speaks. You and I personally speak. That brings us to our next two points. Point five. The individual believer publicly commits himself through the ordinances to Christ. The individual believer publicly commits himself through the ordinances to Christ. There's no secret disciples of Jesus. The only way to follow Jesus is to do so openly in plain sight where everyone can see you. And when we are baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit, Matthew 28, we are publicly pledging our submission to Christ as Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says, and so when we're baptized into that name, we're saying, he's got all authority. 
And when you go ahead, church, and teach everything he's commanded, I'm pledging myself, I'm taking an oath to say I'm going to follow and obey everything that he commanded. We are swearing allegiance to this king. We are taking a public oath. Uh, to put it in contemporary terms, we're, we're taking the Jesus name tag and putting it on our chest. I'm with Jesus. You know those little fish decals you put on the back of the car? Which kind of say I'm a Christian and so you'd be well advised, most of us, not to put one of those in the back of the car the way we drive? Well, in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, we're putting the, putting the fish decal, as it were, on our whole life. I'm with Jesus. At the office, you, the baptized, Lord's Supper receiving member of the church, I'm with Jesus. In the neighborhood, in the voter's booth, in the jury's box, on the ball field, the fact that you are baptized, Lord's Supper receiving member of a church, you're wearing that fish decal on all your life. You're saying, I'm with Jesus. He's with me. And this is my public oath. You might say it's how we put on the team jersey. It's through baptism and the Lord's Supper. You're wearing a Nationals jersey. You're saying, yeah, I'm with the Nationals. You're wearing the baptism, Lord's Supper jersey. You're saying, I'm with Jesus and Jesus' people. And in that sense, baptism should be our first act as Christians. And what's interesting to me is that adherents of other religions tend to understand this better than we Christians in the West sometimes understand it. So if you've spent any time in missionary circles at all, particularly those among, say, Muslim or, or Hindu uh, uh, missionaries in, in Muslim or Hindu settings like, like Mike, Mike's parents, for instance, you'll often hear stories of stalwart Muslim parents respond to a child somewhat half-heartedly when he comes home and says he thinks he's a Christian and believes that and the, and the parent might respond something, well, that, that's fine for you to think that for now. Have your little season. But don't get baptized. And sure enough, if they go ahead and get baptized, whoa, that's when things change with the parent. Because in that baptism, they're, they're signing on the, on the bottom line. They're putting on the jersey. I'm not with your team anymore. I'm with that team. That's a public thing. And so sure enough, all sorts of anger and so forth follows at that point. Muslims and Hindus ironically understand perfectly well what baptism means. It's the person publicly committing themselves to Christ and Christ's people. It doesn't make you a Christian, but it's how you publicly sign up or officially go on record as a Christian. You see, in the Bible, we're called to respond to Christ both inwardly and outwardly. We respond to the gospel inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly, we confess our sin and put our trust in Christ. The work of Salvation is accomplished. It's, it's done. It's not what we do. It's what Christ did by dying on the cross and, and receiving the penalty for sin. And inwardly, we, we, we just hold on to that. And then outwardly, we get baptized by a church and begin to follow all of Jesus' commands. So think about those who were repented and baptized at Pentecost. What must we do? They said to Peter. And he says, repent inwardly. 
and be baptized outwardly. Sign, sign on the bottom line, as it were. And so if we ratify our commitment to Christ through baptism, sign on the bottom line, we re-ratify that oath on a regular basis through the Lord's Supper. When you, when you take the Lord's Supper, you effectively say, Jesus' body was given for me. Jesus' blood forgives my sins. I'm, I'm declaring that to you through participating in the Lord's Supper. So remember what Paul said again in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. He says, through the supper, we participate in the body and blood of the Lord. And in so doing, we reaffirm that initial commitment we made at baptism. There's more we do personally. So, so we declare our allegiance to Christ, point five, point six, here it is. The individual believer publicly commits himself through the ordinances to Christ's people. Point five, commits himself to Christ. Point six, the individual believer publicly commits himself through the ordinances to Christ's people. Again, recall what happens at Pentecost. So those who were accepted his message, Peter's message, were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. Genesis said they were baptized and then went on with their business as they were baptized and added to them. And somehow they were keeping names. They were, they were keeping numbers and names. Excel spreadsheets, I'm not sure. Taking photos back then, putting in a church directory, I, I don't know exactly what they were doing, but they, they know who they were, right? 3,000 were added to the church in Jerusalem on that day. To commit to Christ is to commit to Christ's people. To be united to Christ is to become a member of his body. The Jesus jersey, you might say, is a team jersey, right? Now, a very clear implication of this is that baptism should ordinarily be baptism into membership of the church. That's why you should not get baptized at camp or the Dead Sea when you're on tour of Israel. There's going to be exceptions, as I said before, of course. Think of Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is kind of plopped down in the middle of the desert. There's no church out there. Ethiopian eunuch is, is reading this prophecy from Isaiah 53, and he's like, well, what's going on here? And Philip explains the gospel to him. Well, Jesus fulfills that, he says, and, and the eunuch says, why shouldn't I be baptized? And, and Philip baptizes them. But they're not anywhere near a church. Jonathan, I thought you said it was a church act. Well, if you're going to have a missionary religion that goes places where the gospel isn't, where the church isn't, you're going to have to have exceptions for those sorts of situations. I don't think that's what's normal or, or, or normative for us. I think what happens in Jerusalem in Acts 2 is what's ordinary and normal. But the text does give us this license for if we find ourselves in these extraordinary circumstances. Friend, if you're, if you're ever in a, in a foreign country where there's no gospel and you're sharing the gospel and someone comes to faith, this text, Acts 8, as I understand, gives you license to, to baptize someone in that setting. Uh, and what baptism and the supper do then is to mark off the Christian from the world. It marks them off as members of a church. So the, the believer commits, I hereby pledge myself to Christ and to you, his people, and the church comments or commits, 
we hereby affirm your profession and pledge ourselves to you, a member of Christ's body. So both ordinances publicly identify us with them, Christians, the church, and with him, with Christ. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for all of us share the one bread. Okay, for, for all of I've, I've been mostly speaking about them, what they do in, in, in similar ways. A few real quick comments on, on what they do differently, a few differences. Uh, number one, baptism is one time only, where the supper is regularly repeated. Doorway in, family dinner on a regular basis. Uh, number two, a difference is baptism is something that the church, acting through a representative, does to an individual. Whereas the Lord's Supper is something that the church does as one. Uh, third difference, baptism unites a believer to Christ, while the Supper unites the church as one body. One to many, the many become one. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. And, and, and that's, the, that's the fourth Fourth difference. Baptism makes one part of the many. The Lord's Supper makes many one. Now, so far, friends, all I've been talking about is what the church says and what the believer says. There is, however, one more party who acts and speaks in a baptism. God. God speaks through the ordinances. After all, Jesus ordained, as I said, the ordinances. He authorized to us to speak, but to speak on his behalf, which is to say he's speaking through the ordinances. Our final two points, point seven. God identifies himself with his people through the ordinances. God identifies himself with his people through the ordinances. He places his name on us. And here you might think of how Yahweh in the Old Testament would have identified himself with the people of Israel. These are my people. I am their God. And of course he would eventually cast them out of his land because they were not living according to his name. But then in Ezekiel 36, remarkably, he says, for the sake of my own name, I'm going to bring them back and give them a new covenant. And then in Matthew 28, we see him fulfilling that process, promise, when we are baptized into the name of Father, Son, and Spirit for the forgiveness of sins. And in the ordinances, God says, these are my people and I am their God. Nations of the earth, I'm with them. And then point eight, God constitutes the local church through the ordinances. God actually forms or constitutes the local church through the ordinances. It's remarkable. I show up and I think to myself, oh, it's going to be a long morning. And God's like, I'm forming the church outwardly on earth, visibly through the ordinances. Think about it this way. The local church is formed in two steps, okay? Two steps. Step one People are here uh, saved by hearing the gospel. People are saved by hearing the gospel word. Step two, the two or three 
or two or three thousand who have been saved by that gospel gather in Christ's name. Well, how do we do that? Well, through the ordinances. And in that gathering, Jesus says, I'm going to be there both now and unto the end of the age. So you might say, the gospel word creates the universal church and then the ordinances create the local church. Again, they publicly identify and mark us off from the world. World, They constitute the membership of a church. And so in that sense, it is accurate to say the ordinances are for church members only. But it's even more accurate to say the ordinances make us church members. They are the signs of church membership. They, they really are interesting things, strange things, aren't they? Uh, kind of easy not to think much about them, I find, from, from week to week and year to year. And, and sometimes when you're, when you're watching, say, even a baptism, you're thinking how strange that is culturally. My non-Christian friends are sitting here, they're looking at that. What, what, are they, what are they thinking of this person kind of being dunked underwater by another person? But consider what happens every time we participate in baptism in the Lord's Supper. God speaks. The church on earth speaks. His individual people speak. God declares us united to the most amazing, sin-forgiving, death-defeating event in history when we partake and participate. And in that sense, friends, the ordinances finally are an act of worship. What does it mean to worship? It means to ascribe worth to God and His Word. And when He says, I'm with them, we worship Him by responding yeah, we're with him. That's what we do when we witness. And that's what we do when we partake. I'm with him. He's with me. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for giving us these symbols of our, our union with you and your union with us. Thank you for the loud speech of the gospel and our union to the gospel that we have in the ordinances. Forgive us for not taking them seriously. Forgive us for coming and not discerning the body, taking them casually. Thank you for the opportunity to worship that we have through baptism and the Lord's Supper. To speak clearly about you and who belongs to you. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.